0: Good evening, this is Attorney Vincent Davis. You're on the air with us tonight. Tonight is our family law and divorce talk radio show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. If you've got questions, we possibly have the answers. Give us a call or listen in Uh, to call in for guests. The number is 646-668-8791. Again, that's 646-668-8791. Good evening, I first want to tell our listeners in the audience that if you are involved In a family law or divorce case, or thinking about getting involved in a divorce or family law case, one of the things that you must do is you must, in my opinion, speak to a competent family law attorney. Generally, they will give you an initial consultation for free. Some attorneys may charge for the initial consultation. But either way, please, please, please talk to an attorney. The second thing that you have to do is you have to educate yourself. And by that I mean you must do some research, you must do some readings uh, of articles, of blogs, preferably um, from the the websites of competent family law attorneys. Knowledge is power, and you are going to need knowledge in order to successfully get yourself through uh, this storm of a family law or divorce case. Right now, I'm going to take a call from uh, Area Code 714, ending in 9-8. Good evening. You're on with Attorney Vincent Davis.
1: Hey, Vince. It's Raj. It's a pleasure to join you this evening.
0: Oh, hi, Raj. How are you? Folks, this is our... Um, co-host for the evening attorney Raj Matani. Raj and I work together uh doing family law cases here in Southern California. Raj, just so the listeners will know, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your personal and professional background.
1: Sure. Um for some of our repeat listeners, it's glad to be back. Uh like Vince said, I'm a family law and divorce attorney uh here in Southern California at the law offices of Vincent Davis and Associates I have exclusively uh focused on family law issues uh for the past 3 years uh, in both Orange County, LA and the Inland Empire uh you know even in that short amount of time I've seen what I believe is the the complete scope of family law law cases ranging from small or low income low income clients all the way to uh high dollar uh, multi-millionaires, and that experience gives me the opportunity to advise people no matter what they're going through. So um, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Vince, and uh, I look forward to sharing some, some great information with our, our our callers today. Thank you, Raj. Today, you know, I want to
0: talk about, about, about five subjects. Uh, based upon emails I get from people, these are subjects that people are, are wanting to hear about. So tonight, let's talk about one subject, something called the date of separation. Number two, we're going to talk about enforceable or enforcing certain family law court orders. Number three, we're going to talk about uh, choice of therapists in a family law case. Four, we're going to talk about uh, attorney's fees. And number five, we're going to talk a little bit about custody and visitation if we still have time. Now, before you uh before we get into the first topic, uh, Raj, I want to take a call from our audience. Uh from area code three one zero ending in two two. Good evening. You're on with attorneys Vince Davis and Raj Matan. Hello. Hi, good evening. How are you?
2: okay. This is Ria.
0: Hi, Leo. Welcome
2: to the show. I'm sorry? Did
0: you have a question?
2: Yes, I had a question. I want to or need to file for a divorce, and my husband has left with absolutely no contact. Um, I believe he's left out of state, but I have no idea, and and everybody I had, um, his whole family has blocked me through all means. Telephone, uh emails um internet. So, I want to know how would I go about filing the divorce case.
0: Okay, Raj, why don't you take that one?
1: Sure. Um I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't catch your name by the way. Rhea? Leah. Okay, great to meet you, no, Leah. with the R, Rhea. Oh, Rhea. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Great to meet you. Um so it seems like, you know, your question revolves around sort of two of the initial stages of a divorce process. The first of which is filing your case and the second is serving the other party. Right. So it seems like you're you're ready to start the case and um I think from your area code you're here in California, correct? Yes. Okay. And um have you been a resident of California for at least 6 months? Yes. Okay. So uh what you you're able to file your case and, um, you know, notify the courts that you're filing for divorce and you're ready, you're ready to start that process. So okay. the fact that you don't know where he is isn't mm-hmm. really a bar to starting your case, okay? So okay. you can speak with an attorney um, or even come to our offices and figure out all the issues that are relevant to your divorce and, you know, figuring out what might be the outcomes if you start this process. Okay. The sec- The second part is um, actually really critical, is proof of service of process. What right. that means is, and I'm going to go into a little bit of detail for people who are listening who may not know. It sounds like you might know. But after you file for the case, you have to give the other party notice as right. to the fact that you've begun the case, right? And so right. knowing where that person is is essential. Yeah, if you don't if you don't have any means to figure out where he is, there's a method within California, and I think every state called service by publication. Service by publication. Public, service by publication. Yes. Okay. What what this means is if you've exhausted every every other opportunity um, by calling him, trying to figure out where he lives, hiring a process server. You like you absolutely have no idea where this person is, but the, you know, this is one of the original methods by which people filed for divorce. You essentially publicize at the courthouse, I think sometimes also in newspapers, that you are filing for divorce. And you put this publication out there, there's specific um, procedural things you have to do to notify the court that this is what you're doing, but you put it out there to the world um in a means that he would have reasonable opportunity to find and say that you're filing for the divorce, this is the fact that you filed, these are where the papers are and how to contact you. And if he doesn't respond to that within a certain amount of time, you can move forward without him. So Okay. Um, just because you can't find him doesn't mean you're you know, um I'll use the term of art here, S O L if you, know, <laughs> you might know what that means, but um doesn't mean you're out of luck. Uh, in terms of moving on with your case. You can still do it, and so I would encourage you to speak with an attorney or come to our offices, and we can discuss this process in greater detail and, and how you can go forward. Okay. Does that help you out, Rio, or, or do you have some more follow-up? It, that
2: helps me out a lot. Um, and you said something about that you're also going to discuss the separation date.
1: Yeah, so um Vince if you're ready we can we can launch into that subject right now.
0: Okay, well Rhea,
1: ask us uh-huh. the
0: question you wanted to ask about the separation date.
2: Okay. I wanna know if it would be the day he left the the home. Mhm. That the separation date because or um Because he was not staying with me or on and off staying with me before that.
1: Okay, so actually your question speaks right to the heart and to the uh, questions before the court. So let me ask you some more follow-up questions. Um, Okay. You say, like, you guys were kind of off and on. Um, You guys were living together and then you did a trial separation or what happened?
2: Uh, he, he continued to leave and then come back. and leave and come back for a few months.
1: And why why would he come back? Were you guys trying to reconcile or he came back because he had nowhere else to go? Both. Okay. Okay. Um, he was also
2: trying to help me set stuff up. But it
1: didn't okay. <laughs> and so what's the difference between, let's say, the first time he moved out and then the day he permanently left? Like how much time? Mm, it was about four months, four five months. Okay. I that. Okay. In in your specific case, and um, we'll get into this for the listeners uh, in just a little bit, but in your case, I I would probably argue that your date of separation is the day he permanently moved out. Okay. Um. On, and it's really not going to make a big difference in your case. Uh whether you pick the initial date or the second date uh as, unless you you know hit the lottery or something major happened to the two of you in those in that four month period um so uh barring all other factors, the date that he actually moved out would be the date that I would probably put on your paperwork and would okay be the date that I would probably argue for if I was your attorney okay yeah uh, uh, thank you. All right, you're welcome. You're welcome. Anything else you would like to ask us? Um, No, not at the moment.
2: But I will be calling back in the other time if I visit you guys.
1: Okay. Great. Well, we look forward to we look forward to having you. Thanks for calling in.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Okay, Raj. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about regarding the date of separation, like? Where does that come up on? What form does that come up on? Why is it important?
1: Yeah. So the date of separation, the reason why it's critical and the reason why people need to pay attention to it, and and you'll notice that I asked uh, our last caller a critical question, what happened in that time period on the dates that she was juggling? Um, According to Family Code Section 771, the date of separation is critical for determining what assets and liabilities are the separate property of the parties um, upon divorce. So when you're filling out your initial divorce petition, the person who's filing for the case is going to put the date of marriage and then a date of separation. And the date that you put for the date of separation, if that's found to be the date by the court, then everything you made after that date, all of your earnings, any property that you bought, or um, assets that you obtained become your separate property. So it's actually a very contentious and critical date to think about when filing for divorce. And um, it's such a critical issue that it was brought to the attention of the California Supreme Court uh, just this past year in a case known as uh, In-Ray Marriage of David.
0: What happened in that case?
1: So uh, what happened in that case... Um, is a situation that's really common with a lot of couples. Um, you introduced the show, introduced our callers to the show, saying that divorce is a process that can last, have consequences reaching for many, many years for couples. One of those considerations are the financial status of the parties, whether they have kids or um, you know the ability of one party to support the other. So when a divorce happens, what we all typically think of, um, you know, to use some stereotypes, the wife is fed up, kicks the husband out, he goes and lives someplace else, and the wife is living in, in her own place, and the parties are separate and apart. Um, in that typical scenario, there's no dispute as to what the date of separation was. It's the date that the husband got kicked out, and the wife proclaimed that they no longer wanted to be together. Um what was different in the case of Davis was that the parties had two young children, the children, and decided to, you know, they had a big house, each with a master suite, could live on separate sides of the house, and they essentially stayed together while the children were young, in the same house, but led completely in separate lives. And when it came time for them to divorce, um, you know, the wife put a very early um, date of separation while the husband picked the date where they actually finally moved separate and apart. And what the court determined um, after a trial, an appeal, and then movement to the Supreme Court, what the court determined is that the date in which uh, one of the parties actually moves out, lives separate and apart, is the date of separation. Wow. Wow. So it's kind of like a bright line rule which is um you know for attorneys we love that we love a bright line rule where it says this is a, there's a very specific way in which you can reach a conclusion uh there is no ambiguity to it so you look at the date that somebody moved out and that's your date of separation there's you know there's almost no dispute over it um and so it's it's sort of easy for courts to see one party moved out, is living in a separate place, and that's the date of separation.
0: Why is the date of separation, or why can it be so important in a divorce case?
1: It can be really important. Um, The most critical, where it most often comes up is when when one party says the date of separation is... um, some date in the past and the other party is disputing it a date much later. Um, when the Davis court was discussing the case, they uh, referenced past cases where um, parties disputed on the date of separation for as much as 10 years. And in those 10 years, one party um, had a substantial amount of earnings, came into some property, um, a whole bunch of things that happened to people in the course of their lives. And Uh, depending on what date of separation is chosen, the opposing party can develop a significant financial interest in um, the property of the other party. So um, picking that date of separation is critical because it is a line of demarcation for the entire divorce process as to what assets are to be divided, what assets remain community property, and what assets are separate property, uh, and debts as well. So um, it's usually a big fight amongst attorneys uh, if there's some significant property involved as to what is the true date of separation and what um, each party could be entitled to uh, in terms of the divorce.
0: So this could affect us um, in determining the division of assets. It could be affect... Uh, thousands and thousands of dollars or even more?
1: It, there's been scenarios where, <clears throat> depending on what date of separation is picked, one party, I, I think I've read a case where one party's come into uh, like lottery winnings or a significant um, sum of money, and uh, because a later date of separation was picked, the other party could come into millions of dollars. So it's a it's a big point of contention, and I would say along with Um, custody issues and support issues it's probably the third biggest fight between parties and attorneys uh, in a divorce case
0: so it can be very very important
1: significant it's 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 almost significant um when parties don't have a lot of assets you know i i did a case today where um, the parties don't have a significant amount of of assets and the opposing party and i uh, my client was saying that they the date of separation was sometime in October of last year and the opposing party was saying it was in July. Assets to divide and it didn't really make a difference as to who got what. So the attorney and I were able to stipulate to the earlier date because it didn't make a difference. But when you have significant assets to divide or or um, parties of substantial wealth, it's, it's very meaningful.
0: Sure, sure. Okay,
1: Raj, let's transition into our
0: next topic for this evening. Our next topic is enforceable orders in the family law court. Tell me what that is, and, you know, why why are these things important?
1: Yeah, um, you know, there's two parts uh Vince to to enforceable orders and kind of where I want to go with it. The the first part is in um writing up a stipulation or writing up a judgment when you're in the family court and making sure the language of it is enforceable. So what that means is when you're writing up your agreements, you want to make sure that both parties have an understanding that if one side doesn't follow through with, let's say, for instance, a a custodial pickup or a support payment or um, any other obligation that the parties have agreed to, that there's a direct consequence or system by which the parties acknowledge the dispute and then go about fixing it. Um, the typical uh, procedural way that parties handle this is what's called a, uh, a motion for contempt of court. So like most people know, anytime you don't follow the court's orders, you're in contempt, um, and there should, there's typically a penalty for that, uh, which is either jail time, community service, something of that sort. And so um, it's really critical when drafting your paperwork or drafting your final language that... Um, your attorney be very clear on what that language is, or if you're drafting it by yourself, you are very aware of what you're writing and then what the consequences of that action should. So um, you want to write up and use language that the parties can enforce and have a way to to effectuate uh, when things don't go as planned. So that's the first part. And so it, it leads into into the potential necessity for having an attorney... Or seeking the advice of an attorney to help you draft those documents. Um, anything to add there, Vince, on that first initial part?
0: No, I agree with you 100. percent
1: Okay. Um, have Have you ever run into a, a situation where, you know, the way the 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 documents were drafted created created problems for the parties?
0: Oh yes, many times. Um, and it generally happens when I take over a case, um, you know, from a previous attorney. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I try to pay attention to when drafting court orders is that it will be enforceable at a later date. So a lot of times, you know, things are in a hurry in court, people get a little sloppy, and they don't use precise words that need to be used in making court orders. And if there is some dispute in the future, if the order is not precisely written, it may affect what um, whether you can enforce that order or whether it needs to be changed yet again. I recently was involved in a case where the previous court order said that the father could have visitation as agreed upon, by the parties well the intent of that order was that the father was going to have you know significant uh, visitation they just didn't want to come up with a schedule well something happened between the mother and father they had a big argument and later the mother who had the child decided I'm never going to agree on having or letting the father visit And before we got involved in the case, the father's attorney made a motion or filed what they call an OSC in order to show cause regarding contempt. They wanted to hold the mother in contempt because she was not allowing the father to have visits. Now, contempt proceedings can be criminal in nature, and if the judge finds that a family law litigant has intentionally violated the court order, that person can go to jail for one to five days for each violation. In this particular case, the mother had a very good uh, family law attorney and was able to defeat the contempt hearing or the contempt motion against her because the court order said, the father would have visits as agreed between the parties. Well, the mother technically wasn't agreeing. So she had technically violated any court order. Now, the court order needed to be changed so that the father could have visitation whether the mother agreed or not. That's a whole separate thing. And the reason why the father had called me, because he was not satisfied with his attorney who let that type of order go into effect those types of things happen more frequently than not and um you know sometimes things are good when you're at court and everybody's happy but of course people that are getting divorced they have a a way of disagreeing later on in life you know maybe a month down the road or two months down the road and then you have this issue do you even have an enforceable order I, I can say that on several occasions I've uh, recommended people to not even bring contempt actions, and I do that because the probabilities of winning on a contempt may not be good because the court order that they're trying to hold someone in contempt on, you know, is not one of those definite court orders that you'll be able to win on. So instead of that, I sometimes recommend forget the contempt and just file an, uh, you know, RFO, request for fam- uh request for order to change or modify the visitation or whatever order it is in the family law case so that you can be, um, you know, you can get that going and the contempt it has, you know, won't delay the proceedings. Um, Raj, I want you to tell the audience about the uh, case that we're involved with in Long Beach where um, the client insisted we filed contempt and an RFO and how that contempt is delaying the family law proceedings.
1: Yeah, um you and I have had several meetings about this case and um uh, the mother I in my opinion actually has a pretty um it's not even it wasn't even a stipulation, it was an order of the court that granted her um increased visitation over time, uh on specifically marked dates with uh specially set out times and days. So it's it would be a, an enforceable order when Um, the father doesn't show up for the visitation or uh, doesn't allow phone calls or things like that. So she has a a well-crafted order of the court. What's happened in that case is uh, the mother has decided, well, she not only um, wants to modify the court's previous orders uh, before this um, temporary order was put in place, but she also wants to hold the father accountable uh, criminally uh, by moving forward with a contempt choice has sort of clouded what is essentially her main goal of, of getting increased time with her child. Because the, the contempt proceedings are criminal in nature, the uh, party being accused of the violation steps up in protection from simple you know, family law proceedings to constitutional uh, Fifth Amendment protections and um, constitutional protections for a right to an attorney. And what's happened in this case is that the father, whether uh, informed by someone who is uh, who might be an attorney who's just giving him the right advice, or um, is a, maybe he's just a savant who has figured this out, what he's done is he's delayed the proceedings of the criminal contempt uh, by stating that he wanted one continuance because he needed to find an attorney. Then he we get to the court date, assuming that an attorney would be there, and he tells the court that all these attorneys are too expensive. He needs a public defender. Uh, so the court gives him an extended amount of time to uh, get a public defender. Then we show up at this last hearing, and uh, the public defender, um, for for reasons I can't disclose, Um, Are you know, uh, have declined to assist assist this person. So now he's asking for the court to appoint him an attorney. And all the while in the background, what mother's main goal was is to get a modification so she can spend more time with her son. But the court can't move forward on that proceeding because the father has a a Fifth Amendment protection to self-incrimination to... uh, uh, you know, not make statements on the modification that could impact his contempt. And so what was originally a contempt that I think began back in December has taken all the way up until now and three-a-court appearances and, and significant money expended by the mother with no real results because the contempt proceeding is clouding this whole uh, modification and um, is delaying the proceeding. So, so I think like you start stated originally when we got onto this topic, Sometimes you advise people, and this was my recent advice to the client, to maybe consider not moving forward with the contempt, considering what's really your true goal in the process, and just move forward with a request for order. And this is the kind of you know strategic decision that parties should speak with an attorney about, should uh, research significantly, and um, consider how it could impact what are the real goals in the litigation or in the process uh, with their child and um, think about significance.
0: Okay. That's very good advice. You know, we're running out of time and I want to move it to our next, um, our next topic for tonight. And that was uh therapist choice of therapist in family law matters. Raj, I didn't know therapists were involved in family law matters. What's going on with that? <laughs> uh,
1: they're becoming, they're becoming more and more involved. Um, you know, Family law is stressful on everybody. It's stressful on on the parents. It's stressful, um, maybe whether recognized or not. It's stressful on the children. It's stressful on family, and um, the stress of that proceeding can impact people in significant ways. Um, so even without a court's order, you know sometimes it's it's worthwhile to just go in for a mental checkup and and calibrate yourself for the process. What's happening more often than not is um, therapists for for children who are what's happening most often in my cases is, is that the parties have children who are old enough to understand what's going on, but too young legally to testify in a case. the The typical uh, standard is age fourteen, or some exceptions can be made if um, you know. The judge interviews the child, and uh, they seem to be especially mature and and aware of themselves. So um, therapists get involved in the case as as, uh, an assessment for the child and as a voice for the child sometimes in the process. And parties go back and forth. And we have a case right now where this is happening. Um, Parties are going back and forth over who the therapist could be, and so it's really important for people to understand what options they have under their health insurance, what kind of therapist they want, and how to properly vet and select a therapist um, in the process. So um, people have to take stock of of a lot of different things in not only the choice of whether to get a therapist involved, but who that person might be.
0: What's the best way to find a therapist for a family law case?
1: So obviously the... um, the first choice should always be to look for someone who is within your health insurance network um probably within your local area and um depending on what the issues of your case are specializes in those areas. So you want to find somebody who will um who's an expert in child issues related to divorce or um if the child has special needs has is aware of those special needs um and then additionally if they'll provide a report to the court. Not a lot of therapists will provide a report. So the pool of potential therapists can dwindle very quickly. Um, in the case that I'm dealing with right now, the parties are um, in the in the valley uh, area, San Fernando Valley area. And I think opposing counsel and I went back and forth over maybe 30 different therapists and through our vetting process, there was literally only one person who was qualified by the insurance uh was affordable for the parties and would provide a report to the court so sometimes when people get into court they uh, sort of um uh, casually toss around oh we'll put the kids in therapy and then they'll make an assessment you have to know beforehand who that person might be um do some background research on on that person and whether they're qualified and then go go forward with recommending that that person.
0: Okay. Now, are these therapists that are being used? Are they to provide counseling for the mother, the father, the children, or do they do some type of uh, psychological evaluations, or is it both?
1: They, yeah, it's the the therapy field is so broad. Um, you can have therapists uh retain for the purposes of evaluation and expert testimony you can and but those are very expensive um you can have uh therapists retained for the children specifically um and then you can also have therapists who are retained for meeting with the children and then providing a report to the parents about um, issues that the children are facing and how the parents can help the process along so um People, clients need to be especially concerned with what do they want to get out of that of that therapist. Do they simply want the children to have a safe zone to talk to somebody, so they don't feel like they're choosing one parent or the or the other, or do they really need someone to tell them what's going on with their case and um, provide a more detailed medical understanding of of the process of what's going on with their kids? Okay. Do you have any favorite therapists? without naming
0: their names that you like to use in cases. Um,
1: I don't uh, I have a couple um and I think Vince you'll know exactly who they are because we seem to use these people quite often. Um but yeah, I the legal practice and and um I think other attorneys can attest to this. You develop relationships with people, you develop confidence in certain people. So, um whenever a, a client asks me as to who should I send their kids to? I never tell them one name. I give them a. I offer them a list or multiple choices or help them find their insurance. But um, you know, there are certain ones who I I know are very confident and who are who who will provide an honest assessment, unbiased honest assessment uh, to the process and really illuminate um, issues for the parties. All
0: right. Fair enough. Okay, let's move along to our next subject: um, attorneys' fees.
1: Yeah, this one's this one's a, a favorite, I think, of of a lot of clients.
0: What What is it about attorneys' fees in uh, family law and divorce cases?
1: Attorneys' fees are, are are really interesting. I often find them to be a bargaining chip or uh, source of advantage um, for litigants when, when going through the process. I can't tell tell you the amount of times where opposing counsel will say, give us such and such concessions or we're going to go after you for attorney's fees or respond to me in X amount of time or I'm, I'm going to go forward on attorney's fees. And it's always lobbed out there as a threat. Um, but I think what clients need to know is that... Making a petition for attorney's fees or asking for them um, is a pretty intense process, and is not doesn't always have a guaranteed outcome, and is a big um, investigation for the court when making a de- determination as to whether one party would have to pay fees. And uh, what clients should know is that when asking your when asking one party to pay attorney's fees. You're you're going to pay your attorney to write up this motion to ask for these fees, and you're still going to be entitled to pay them if you lose. So it has to be a very calculated, strategic decision, like everything in a divorce case, between attorney and client as to whether to seek these out. But um, in the event that you do decide to, uh, I want to go over Family Code Section 2030 and explain to to our listeners. What the court looks at in terms of making an award, and um, what they should be ready to to discuss in front of the court.
0: What section is that covered
1: in? It's covered in Family Code Section twenty thirty, um, and like I re- like I tell all of our listeners every week, um, you can feel free to follow along with us. It, I literally ran a Google search, and I have it up on uh, up with my notes with me today, and we're gonna we're gonna go through the three elements that the um, court looks at when making a determination for attorney's fees. Go ahead. Yeah, so let's, why don't we get right into it. How does that sound, Ben? Good. So, uh, like founding Code Section 2030 says, there's there's three main factors that the court looks at, and they have, the court, the judge has to make a finding of fact, um on these issues uh, when making a determination for attorney's fees. The first, factor the court looks at is whether an award of attorney fees is appropriate in this in that case. The second factor they look at is whether the disparity in funds between the higher earning party and the less earning party um, creates an a bar to access to legal representation for the case. And lastly is whether even if all those facts are there, does the party who's being asked to pay for both attorneys have the um funds available to make those payments? So, uh Vince, we've been involved in a couple in a couple of attorneys' keys motions recently. Um maybe you can tell all of our listeners, you know, how how this specific issue has impacted uh some of our cases and, and some things you might have learned from it. Well, you know
0: attorneys fees, depending on who and what the case is about you know i, I sometimes i I appreciate the fact that the legislature has um you know set forth uh, the ability to recover attorney's fees in twenty thirty but it seems in you know in some of our cases it's a little bit abusive um You know, and it's used by the other side, and it's taken to its very limit. And it almost seems sometimes that, uh, to me, that all of the factors aren't always looked at. Now, maybe that's because I don't agree uh, with uh, (laughs) some judges, uh, but, you know, that's just my opinion. Uh, There is one case where we're involved in right now where we have a high-income earner, and, um, he moved, well, we, we filed an RFO to request, um, a downward modification. And the reason why we did that is because, uh, he took a significant pay cut, not because he wanted to, but just, you know, that was the situation. And, um, the attorney for the, uh, the mother came into court and, uh, and made a representation and I forget exactly what he says, Raj, but we'll have to get the transcript. But basically made a res- representation that um our client was making a lot of other income on the side but not reporting it. And I and I wondered where he got that information. Uh but anyway, in order he made that representation and then asked the judge for thirty thousand dollars.
2: I think it was thirty thousand
0: dollars. Oh, yeah, that's right. He asked for 50. Uh, we argued against it. The judge still gave him $30,000 to go on a fishing expedition because he represented to the judge that our client was basically in his income and expense declaration. And he went on this expedition, and he found nothing. He found yes. nothing, but he made 30, he made $30,000. Then, on top of that, since he didn't find any income, he's come up with a whole new argument and the the argument is is that uh his client should receive not only guideline child support but there should be some add-ons because this child needs this additional uh you know support because of the child's special needs now that case had the judgment came out in April 2015 we had never heard about these add-ons We didn't hear about the add-ons until after they realized that he was not making any more additional money. Now they've come up with a new argument, the add-ons, and they're running up the attorney's fees on that. Now, Raj, I've been thinking about how I am going to and how we are going to come up with a defense about them asking for all of these attorney's fees. Um, I think that it's taken... Family Code Section 2030 to a whole new level, and uh, what I, w- what, in my opinion, is they're abusing, you know, abusing the law, and they're just making our client pay for these attorney's fees because they're on they're on some type of um, fishing expedition. Yeah, uh, that's my most. Re-
1: that's my yeah, most I, the recent one thing' Yeah, and you and I, I think I've I've put in some long nights on that one uh, specifically. But the one thing I'll add to it is, you know, what I've taken away from that whole experience. Um, I think we spent an entire day in court trying to trying to settle the case, and it got it got ripped away from us at the last moment. But I would agree with you that the other party is trying to use this attorney's fees um, as a bargaining chip. Uh, to try and get our client to pay to pay money from other sources or to try and get money for for other reasons, knowing that they weren't able to prove weren't able to find what they said they would find and uh, it's one of the it's created one of these impressions for me that attorneys' fees are always this or are often simply a bargaining chip for the other side uh, to get the higher earner to capitulate to, to a support number. Um, and, you know, from that support number, then they'll pay their own attorney or do whatever is necessary. But, um, you know, like I've been saying, it's, it's one of these things that always seems to come up when there's, when there's a search for more money and a high wage earner to get them to uh, make an arrangement or make an agreement that may not always be in their best interest and, and to sort of get the case moved along because, they' rather not fight on the attorney's fees and all these other issues uh combined so uh, I think you and you and I have a lot of work to do and uh, uh I like your strategy going forward already
0: okay, uh, one more topic for this evening um the last topic, which is a topic you know you we could talk about for hours and hours and hours about, is. Um, I think we said the topic of child custody and child visitation. Earlier you said that uh, a lot of money is spent in family law cases and divorce cases on child custody and visitation. Um, why do you think that is?
1: The reason for it is is it's the one area where emotion and uh advantage sort of come together. The what I in my opinion what often happens is the party who wasn't ready to end the relationship um uses the custody and visitation fight to exert whatever control they may have left um to stay involved in the other person's life. Um and so they exert or take unreasonable positions in custody and visitation, um, despite what the law says. And they use it as a consistent reason to either come back to court, to seek a modification, or to protract the proceedings. And that's why, you know, um, I think Kanye West has a a famous line in one of his songs, uh, you know, 18 years, 18 years... You found out you had a baby. They got you for 18 years, and and people don't realize you you start the case, and for until that child graduates high school, there's a potential that you can have a fight on your hands for 18 years.
0: Raj, I'm impressed by your Kanye West uh, <laughs> well, knowledge.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I think he's a uh, uh, person of person of the moment number one. Uh, apart from his. Uh, psychotic rantings at times but he used to have good music. <laughs> I
0: didn't hear what you said. He used to have what?
1: Yeah, I said he used to have good music. But now it's it's uh, on a whole different plane, but that's neither relevant to our discussions today or or, or topical, but uh I think the line was relevant to our to our subject.
0: Let's assume, Raj, that uh our audience has very little uh, experience um, in child custody and visitation litigation. Okay. Tell me what. Tell me what you define as physical custody, and then there's joint and primary. You know, what does yeah. all that mean?
1: So these are, you know, the foundational elements of, of law and. Uh, child custody visitation cases. There's two two parts to custody. There's where the child lives, and then there is there are all the decisions related to the child's health and well-being. The decisions related to where the child goes to school, what doctors they see, what medical attention they receive. Uh, those kinds of issues are all under the umbrella of legal custody. Oh. Uh, how much time the child spends with one parent or the other, uh, you know, where they get dropped off, picked up, um, or what extracurricular activities they get into, those all fall, or times they do that, I should say, uh, those fall under the umbrella of physical custody, and um, I think clients sometimes get caught up in, in a couple of distinctions there between joint and primary and um, sole legal, sole legal or sole physical custody. Essentially what happens, someone, in terms of the physical side, the person who's taking care of the child the most is what's considered the primary custodial parent. Um, and then the person who's making the decisions on the the health and well-being of the child, you know, they're the ones who are controlling that process. So um, these arise in every family law case. They, these determinations have to be made uh, regarding children. And so... Um, parties have to be very aware of what they what they want to do in, in both of those processes.
0: Okay, so that's joint, primary, soul, and then there's physical and legal custody.
1: Yeah. Essentially, there's, the two big umbrellas are legal and physical custody, and then you sort of get into some nuance as to the differences of whether you're going to make those decisions together or one person will do them or one person will take the lead and the other person will remain informed um but those are the kind those are those sort of nuanced decisions are are something that I think an attorney should always advise parties of as to what are the ramifications of making those decisions and um entering into those type of concessions um in court
0: you know with respect to these custody and visitation cases or cases involving custody and visitation um, do you think that mediation or collaborative law uh those types of things are useful
1: they're well they're not I personally believe that they're not only useful uh in most courts, i think in all of Southern California, they require parties to attend the mediation session um when there are issues of child custody and visitation involved- L- like I said earlier, you know. The reason for parties or litigants establishing a, a position on these issues is not always based in what's what's in the best interest of the child. It's sometimes based in their emotional reaction to uh, to the other side and wanting to exert leverage. So, using mediation or collaborative law or um, or uh, some sort of alternative dispute resolution. Uh, I think helps parties reach a resolution and an understanding um, about their case um, and resolve that issue before it gets out of hand.
0: How many cases w- that you're involved with currently is mediation used?
1: Um, in every, it's, it's involved in every one of my cases. Um, now, that doesn't mean the parties get a result. Um, oftentimes, you know, all the courts that are required... When the court requires parties to attend mediation, essentially all you have to do is you have to show up and prove to the court that you were there. Um, You can disagree with everything the other party offers, but you've met your obligation by showing up. Um, I've actually found some success in um, getting getting the parties together on the phone or holding a joint conference between myself and the opposing attorney and resolving the issues... Uh, sort of all at once in front of each other. Um and when that process is used, i I found I found there to be great results and and uh positive outcomes. It's when you complicate this issue as a as a litigious factor that uh that creates the most the most complications.
0: Okay. Well Raj, I want to thank you again for joining us this evening as our co host and next week, you know, Raj, you know, you know what I'd like to talk about because I've received several emails over the last three months um, on this issue, um, the uniform, the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdictional and Enforcement Act, the UCCJEA, and on uh, to federal law called PKPA. It's the Federal Parental Federal Parental Kidnapping Prevention Act. And um, those types of issues come up in a lot of cases um, where, you know, we don't uh, necessarily anticipate, you know, them coming up. And also also um, issues involving the custody of American Indian children, uh, ICWA, I know a lot of people think that those uh, ICWA laws just apply to uh, juvenile dependency cases, uh, but they also apply in family law cases. So if you don't mind, next week, we're going to talk about those uh, different topics um, with our audience. How does that sound?
1: Uh, That sounds great, Vince. Uh, I look forward to presenting those issues to our to our listeners next week and uh as always we encourage people to call in with questions and concerns or you can always email our office and we can maybe address those issues on air next week. But uh I look forward to I look forward to broadcasting with you again, Vince.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Before we leave and, and uh finish the show in these last few minutes I want to tell people that we uh represent people you know, mothers and fathers uh, and husbands and wives in family law cases uh, several different ways, three primary ways. Uh, Number one, we represent uh, clients on what's called a full-scope representation. That's where we basically handle everything from A to Z, soup to nuts. We take care of everything. That's usually done by the client paying an upfront retainer, and then as we use the retainer or go over the use of retainer, we send you an accounting and an invoice uh, every month. The second and the third way that we represent people in these types of cases is something relatively new, a few years old, where um, the state of California now allows attorneys to represent clients in family law and divorce matters on something called a limited scope representation. And we represent clients in two ways in limited scope matters. First, we represent them without an attorney. So for example, someone comes to us and wants us to represent them on a limited scope basis, but they just want us to prepare the paperwork. We just prepare the paperwork under their name and we file it with the court. And when it's time to go to a hearing, uh, they go and they represent themselves. We can give them some uh, pointers about, you know, representing yourself in the family law court. Uh, But, you know, some people like to do the limited scope without an attorney. The other way that we represent people is limited scope with an attorney. And that is where you come to us and you select something off of our menu of services, and you just want us to do those one or two things. And maybe you want us to do one or two things in the future, but you only have to pay for those things that you want done right now. And they're usually a flat fee basis. You pay us one time to do one service. Uh, For example, we might do your request for order, your RFO paperwork. And we would appear at the hearing, which sometimes can be a mini-trial, and we represent you at that RFO hearing. And then we're done with the case. As time goes on, if you want other services from our menu of services, we can do that as well. We can prepare the paperwork, and we can also go to court if necessary and represent you at court. So limited scope was developed so people could have more access to our justice system they don't have to come up with thousands of dollars um, to retain an attorney from the very beginning and they won't get bills every month for you know two three four five thousand um, dollars it's a one time one shot representation and if in the and in the future if things work out then additional services are purchased um by the litigant or the husband or the wife or the mother or the father and we represent the um these parties just on that limited scope representation okay so we'll see you next week on the divorce and family law show where we 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 will be taking calls and talking about new topics